I'm always all about having like instructions in my books and instructional YouTube videos and trying to show kids how easy it is to get started. And because I just, I agree. I completely agree. They're the kids and they're not sure where to go next. And if they aim for perfection, that's the wrong, that's, well, for every once in a while, there's a kid that does aim for perfection and reach it. But for so many people, that's just a way to drive yourself crazy and yes, ruin your self-esteem. I've tried to teach kids, man, it just, get it down on paper, make it happen. I don't want it perfect. I want it big and splashy and loud. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm graphic novelist Jarrett J. Krasoska, and welcome to Origin Stories. In this podcast, I go on a deep dive into the upbringings and artistic developments of some of the very brightest and most talented graphic novelists working today. In this episode, we are going to get to know how Tom Engelberger became the Tom Engelberger. Tom made a name for himself with the Origami Yoda books, which were first published in 2010. While Tom has been active creating his own characters and worlds, he's also been entrusted with books for Rocket and Groot, as well as Geronimo Stilton. But in the Krasoska house, he will forever be iconic for his Inspector Flytrap books. Like everything Tom does, those books are laugh-out-loud funny and pure fun, just like Tom himself. One of my most prized possessions in my studio, an origami lunch lady made by Mr. Origami Yoda himself. Oh, and, and hey, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or telling a friend. All right, on to Tom Engelberger's origin story. Origin Stories with JJK. Before we get into my conversation with Tom, Origin Stories is sponsored in part by High Five Books, a beautiful and incredible indie bookshop here in Florence, Massachusetts. Check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for links to buy Tom's books from this fabulous indie. And, and might I suggest Tom's newest graphic novel, Two-Headed Chicken? Okay, on to my talk with Tom Engelberger. How are you, my friend? Hey, JJK, how are you? I'm well, man. It's been ages since we've had a chance to sit down and talk. And it has been a long time. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to getting to know all about what it was like for you growing up and how, like, where, like, how you got to Origami Yoda. I have a good sense of what happened after Origami Yoda. And because we had CC Bell as a guest, we have her side of the story of how you intersect with her origin story. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 So this is going to be a nice companion episode. And yeah. So Tom, tell me about what it was like for you as a kid. What was your world like when you were a kid? It's interesting that you're asking me this question now, because I've been doing like a deep dive through my memory banks lately. And normally when people would ask me, when did you start? being an author or a cartoonist, I would tell him it was the seventh grade. Because in the seventh grade, I wrote a comic strip about snails. It was about cowboys that rode snails instead of horses, okay? That was a complete failure and a disaster, but it was, I, for a long time, I said that was the beginning. But recently, I started thinking further back, and I started going back to the fourth grade, which was the worst of many bad years for me in school. It was the absolute worst year. And 
you just got to imagine an undiagnosed autistic kid flopping around the classroom, having outbursts, meltdowns, and that's bad enough for your fellow fourth graders. But for some reason, they had put us in a class that was also fifth graders. And the fifth graders were like adults walking around in there. And I'm like a, I'm acting like a kindergartner. It was a bad year. It was a big mess all around, a huge mess. Many tears were shed. Many phone calls to my parents were made. <laughs> but I ended up finding this one thing in the fourth grade. When I look back on it, it's such a string of disasters. But there's this one thing was that the English teacher had a, a bookshelf in the classroom. And on the shelf was, and I don't know if you can pull this image up, a book along the lines of 101 Outer Space Joe. Oh, that's great. I think jokes, it might have been Star Joel. Remember the seventies? <laughs> so Star Wars and Jaws were the big things. So Star Joel was, <laughs> it might have even been spaced out. Because there was the seventies and a lot of people were spaced out. So these were spaced out jokes. But these were three these are three books. I do not know uh which of these books was the one, but one of them lit a fire under me to start drawing outer space monsters, almost all giant space amoebas. I couldn't stop drawing them. I just drew them and drew them and drew them. And one wasn't better than the next. It was just one after another. And I didn't even remember that for the longest time, but that was really, that's my origin story. It's somewhere from one of these books. And Will Eisner is the guy that put a lot of these books together. Wow. Will I, like as, as editor? I owe it all to Will Eisner. And I didn't even, I didn't even know that until quite recently. Okay. So let's, but let's take a moment to really appreciate the sort of historical context of this, if you will. So this was the mid 1970s? Late 1970s, about 78, I think. Okay. And maybe is that area. And your teacher had comic books in the class floppy comic books yes. well that, these are were from a lot of these came through scholastic and okay. they were like ones that were like the 35 cent check mark at the that you would add that you'd get like bridge terabithia and then you'd ask your mother for an extra 35 cents so you'd get spaced out jokes you know what i'm talking about yeah no for sure but i'm wondering i know that when the past 15 20 years as we've been putting out comics for graphic novels for kids and some librarians get flack still to this day by adults who are well-meaning but misinformed who will say things like, you know, don't let my kid read another Garfield, just a real book. I'm now imagining what that teacher dealt with in 1978. Like, you, like, like that was a radical, brave thing for your teacher to have those books. I honestly, I never thought about that before. That's very wild. I'd never thought about that, JJK. And when I see those books, they have Tom Engelberger's sensibility like all over them. That is, there would be like there would be no Origami Yoda if you didn't have this Star Jaws spoof in 1978. That's just wild. So you had this teacher who put little like little lifelines for you on the bookshelf. And were, did you have a lot of comics at home? Like what kind of, what kind of, what kind of media was at your house, be it TV or books or literature? Did your parents have expectations of you on, on, on like reading and stuff? I was a reading, I was a, I was nonstop reading addict. So there were lots of books at home and I did have a few comic books. I had a few 
Fantastic Fours and things like that lying around. But I didn't have anything like this. And I'm, I yeah, do have to wonder, yeah. would my mother have purchased something like this? Or would she have been like, no, that's too dumb. Because <laughs> <laughs> my mother was anti the Batman TV show because it was too dumb. Mm. And this is much dumber than the Batman TV. <laughs> this is really, and it's intentionally dumb. It's just the, right. the silliest, dumbest stuff they could come up with. And they were obviously having a good time doing it. But yeah, I don't know that my mother would have bought that. I, now that you mentioned it, I don't know why the teacher had it. I'm starting to wonder if a kid just left it behind. And <laughs> I don't, I can't explain it. Now that you mentioned it, it's a mystery. Yeah. Wow. But thank goodness that those books were there because we wouldn't really sound like that catapulted you into the Tom Engelberger we, we knew and we know. And after high school, and by the way, where did you grow up? Oh, now I grew up in the Turkey production capital of the world, the Shenandoah Valley. We've got turkeys growing everywhere. And every, the only places there aren't turkeys growing are places where they've spread the turkey manure. Those are the <laughs> only two options. I take that back. There's a third option, and that's where they... Turkey graveyard? Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. The, the processing plant. I don't know why my mind went to a cemetery where they're like, oh, he had a good life. No, like they're, just, no, they're making no. nuggets. They're making nuggets. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley in Turkey country. And it was a great place to grow up, though. I'm not knocking it. It smelled terrible, but it was a beautiful place. It was very beautiful there. Very nice. And yeah, I went to this tiny little school in downtown Bridgewater, really tiny little town. And little did I know about the horrors that awaited me inside that cute little schoolhouse. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, eventually you, you survived that schoolhouse. Aside from those silly comics, what do you think, what else was it that, that kept you going? I think you've got a slide for this too. It's Pinkwater. Pinkwater is, to me, Pinkwater is like the, the touchstone. What, all of, so many of my books, maybe all of my books are just Pinkwater ripoffs. He got me through middle school. He got me through high school. And, and then he helped me write books. He didn't know he was doing it, but he helped me figure <laughs> out how to make books myself. Absolute masterpiece. And one of the things I love about it, I don't know if you spent time with this book, but yes, you know how when you're drawing with markers and they, the, you draw and it, you, the markers overlap and you get that line and you're like, oh, this is terrible. I've messed it all up. I got to start over. Pinkwater, <laughs> Pinkwater was like doing that on purpose. You can even yes. see it there on the cover of the book. And man, if there's like the guy who's, hey kids, get your markers and start coloring. And we don't have time to worry about lines. We don't have time to worry about straight lines. We don't have time to worry about marker mishaps. We got a story to tell. That's what I love about Pinkwater. He was just like, let's do this. Let's tell a great story. From dipping into Pinkwater's work, did you like, as a teenager, who's then going to be catapulted into adult, was that, did you have that as, I want to be a writer? I want to make stories? Oh yeah, that, that started, that started really early. I just, I can't even imagine really a time when I wasn't doing that. Like I've told a lot of people, like being autistic, you have a lot of different dials and things. And what, there's a dial for like verbosity. And my verbosity dial is so out of whack. And I just talked 
and talked for my entire childhood. And then I finally discovered if you can write and some of those words will come out on paper, you don't actually have to talk them all. They don't have to be all said out loud. And so far, things have gone a lot better with the stuff on paper than the stuff that actually comes out of my mouth. <laughs> if you've been enjoying my chat with Tom Engelberger and want to see the conversation, which includes visuals of the books we reference, check out studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories. I recorded this talk via Switcher Studio. Switcher Studio is a simple and powerful iOS app that makes your live video feeds look like a professionally produced piece. Your iPad becomes like the production control room as you switch between your iPhone camera, you know, which acts as a webcam, your remote guests, any pre-recorded video or visuals you want to bring up on the screen. I'd like to thank Switcher Studio for sponsoring this pod. And as a thank you to you for listening, you may use code StudioJJK at SwitcherStudio.com to receive a free month of the service. And did, did your family like support and encourage that passion you had for storytelling? Yes, maybe just so that I would be quiet. That's why you started writing, because they're like, we can't listen to this kid. I have an idea. Get a pen and paper and you can start, get a typewriter. You can start typing out the story. Yeah, my mother did buy me a typewriter. Maybe that was part of it. I think so. That might have been part of it. Like, it what are we going to do with I this kid? Well, I thought it was a punishment, but it was us. <laughs> and was there an expectation for you to continue with education beyond high school? Oh, yeah, I would definitely think so. Yeah, definitely. And I wasn't a great high school student by any means, but there was definitely that idea that I should continue and find something to do. And I've always been amazed that my parents supported me being an art major because the artwork I was producing, I don't think that it shows all that much promise, frankly. And 30 years later, it, I, that's correct. There was no promise there. It's all terrible. It's not terrible. It's you. It's every artist has their own style. Some parents are really terrified to go to art school. And was there ever any pushback though? Like they're, you're going to continue your education? Really I know. And like I said, I don't understand it. They were more supportive of me maybe than they should have been. They were very supportive. I tell them I'm majoring in art and they were, they, yeah, that sounds great. Wow. And I'm still surprised by that. And I'm really grateful. They, but they always encouraged me. I was always making comics, comic books. They always encouraged me, even though looking back on them, I can see that they weren't very good. But my parents constantly supported me on them. But they, must, they must have seen how happy it made you. Maybe so. Maybe that was enough. Maybe that was enough. Yeah. Or, but my, my poor mother was always like, if you work so hard on the drawing, why can't you make your handwriting better? <laughs> right? <laughs> Right, neatly so people can read the caption on the comic. She was, she pleaded with me so many times and I, I only had now, years later, have come to realize, man, she was right. Totally. <laughs> I That's should have done a lot neater job on that hand, right? Maybe people would have gotten the jokes if they had, could have read. <laughs> that would be a good litmus test on, are they being polite? Or if you did a comic with really poor penmanship that really didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so if they laughed because they thought the joke was funny, you would know they were lying because <laughs> there would be no joke. Yeah. <laughs> so you studied art and I'm assuming you kept writing in that time as well. I did. And in fact, in college, that was when I discovered, as long as we're talking comics. Yeah. That was when I discovered, yeah. That's when I discovered Steve Rude. And I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Rude. No. Fantastic comic book artist. He's so good. Just so 
the tightest lines, the most inventive drawings. He's the best. So at college, I discovered Steve Rude and immediately wanted to become the next Steve Rude. And I didn't have, I had never put in the work on anatomy or life drawing. I had never put in the work for learning just comic basics. And here I was deciding I wanted to emulate the great one. And that led me off in sort of some wrong directions. And it took me a long time to, to say, to realize, oh, I'm never going to be Steve Rude. Nobody else is Steve Rude. It's certainly not going to be me either. It's taken me a long time to come back around and be like, hey, I can make comic books with my own drawings, such as they are. And it's actually worked. I've now done, what number am I on now? My sixth graphic novel. And it's amazingly fun. I still haven't become really great artist, but I'm still having fun with it. And a lot of it was, the fire was lit back there in college when I just happened to run into those Steve Rude books. Of course, that was the same time that Frank Miller was putting out the Batman book and the Daredevil book and Ronan. And so there was a lot of great comics at the time. And I really wanted to be a part of that. It just took me 30 years to figure out how to be part of it. And so for the listeners, if you could just like quickly describe what Steve Rude's work looks like and how well, I'm trying to imagine the college age Tom Engelberger. <laughs> so Steve Rude hold, all, completely doubled down on like Jack Kirby and he learned how to really emulate Jack Kirby. And then he branched out into illustrator, illustrators like N.C. Wyeth and Howard Pyle. And so just imagine like Jack Kirby and superheroes, but drifting towards N.C. Wyatt. And Steve Rude became a fantastic oil painter. And he would paint these gorgeous covers that were superhero action, but N.C. Wyatt or Howard Pyle kind of style, Andrew Loomis, that kind of stuff. He's really worth looking up. He's still active. He's still amazing. I had no hope ever of catching up with him. He's just light years ahead. But you bring up, but that's a great story. And I think a really important piece for the listeners to take away. Because we, a big part of being an artist is we learn by copying, right? We learn by emulating. But there are times where you think, I will never be that. And you might feel really insecure about, about that fact. But it's not that you need to be that. You need to be this yourself. Like, you, like your style is so singular and goofy and fun and accessible it's exactly what kids need like there was like somewhere in this country every single school day somewhere in this country and internationally there is some fourth grader who's struggling and floundering and they're coming across a Tom Engelberger book the way you came across those silly Space Jaws books. Like, it's so cyclical. And if you had said, no, if I can't draw like Steve Rude, then what's the point? That's That would have been terrible. Absolutely. And that's why I'm always all about having, like, instructions in my books and instructional YouTube videos and trying to show kids how easy it is to get started and because... I just, I agree. I completely agree. They're the kids and they're not sure where to go next. And if they aim for perfection, that's the wrong, that's, well, for every once in a while, there's a kid that does aim for perfection and reach it. But for so many people, that's just a way to drive yourself crazy and yes, ruin your self-esteem. 
I've tried to teach kids, man, it just get it down on paper, make it happen. I don't want it perfect. I want it big and splashy and loud. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> you, I will say in like the 21 years that I've been in the book business, without fail, people are their work. There's like the best work is done by people who just throw themselves into it. So, okay. So you now have a degree in art and you have these ambitions of writing and illustrating, making comics, getting published, but there's got to be a lot that happened between those moments, right? Oh yeah. I did a lot of self-publishing, spent a lot of time at the copy store, copying comics out and stapling them and taking them to a bookstore and being like, just put this on the shelf. If it sells, you don't even have to give me the money. I just want it to get out there. I was just desperate to get the stuff out there. Yeah. And luckily one of my friends owned a comic book store. And so I, he was always super supportive of having my comics there. And a few of them got out there. A few of them got out there. It was mostly just the learning experience. And it was, it was great though. It was, it's really fun. That's a really fun thing where you're, it's all you and you, nobody else has to sign off on it. And you're just down there hitting go on the copy machine. And it's just, it's fun. It can be depressing when you realize not many people are going to read what you've done or appreciate what you've done. But you can't let that stop you. And you can't let that be the metric of have I succeeded or not. Be X number of people read it. You've got to make it. Did I make something? Did I learn something? Am I headed somewhere with all of this? And for a long time, I was trying a million different things. I just tried so many different things. And of course, Origami Yoda was the thing that finally stuck. But I had a million other things that I tried. It came and went, and some of them were good, and some of them were terrible. And is that, if I understand it correctly, I understand that you were a journalist for a newspaper? Oh, so that was the day job. Was Of course, when I first got out of I started at a lawnmower parts factory. And, oh, that um, is a great detail. That is yeah, such a cool detail. I job at the a part-time job at the newspaper, and I was juggling as the chicken guy on weekends, and so oh, I, I know what that is, but I think you need to tell us a little bit more about yeah, well, juggling. I was, I was a professional juggler and I made very little as far as jugglers go, but it was great money for somebody who's also making minimum wage at the lawnmower parts factory. Making 50 bucks on a Saturday by throwing stuff around, it was huge for me back then. So I was working seven days a week, juggling on the weekends, part-time lawnmower parts and reporting on the weekdays and weeknights because the stupid school boards have to meet in the dead of night. I've been around Ohio in this car in the snow with juggling stuff in the back. And uh, it was a great, it was a great time. And the whole time Cece was in graduate school at Kent State and she was just showing so much promise and it was obvious she was going to be a huge success. So it was okay for me just to be goofing around and trying 50 different things. Yeah. Wow. You were a lawnmower parts factory. That, you know, and and I, Cece mentioned that she also was helping design like pencil cases for sync. And I just- Oh, that I comes just, a little late. Yeah. She was, she really cranked out some amazing work. It, 
you would never think you see the stuff and it looks fantastic. I bet there were a lot of happy in sync fans out there who were like, wow, this picture of whatever his name is looks fantastic. <laughs> oh, wow. Look, you'll hear her episode, but she just spoke so lovingly and highly about how your support was integral to her getting her book career started. So now I'm, I, I knew there was, you were a journalist for the newspaper, but now I'm thinking you took so many odd jobs to get food on the table, juggling lawnmower part. It was the crazy thing is it was great. The lawnmower parts job was one of the greatest jobs. It was minimum wage, but we were on a line. There were four of us and I was next to this great, crazy old lady named Judy. And Judy would just, <laughs> we would crank these wallpaper parts out. And Judy was just having a big old time laughing and carrying on. And I actually enjoyed it. It was fun. It's a lot of work. It's a long day when you're making, I think we, our goal was something like 1900 of these switches a day that we had to crank out. It was a long day, but we had so much fun. It was crazy. That was a good job, but it was. So then tell me about, draw the line, connect the dots for us, connect the dots for us then between the lawnmower job and like your first traditionally published book, not just a Xerox, but like a big publisher said, Mr. Engelberger, we're giving you a contract and we're going to print these copies. Okay. So eventually the juggling and the newspaper stuff got more successful. I was able to quit the lawnmower part. Eventually I got a full-time job at the newspaper. I wrote so many stories. The database ran up to a thousand. If you had more than a thousand stories, it would just say a thousand stories. So I maxed that out. I was up over a thousand stories. I had done it all. And one of the stories I got sent out to do was the sewage treatment plant. Mm -hmm. And the sewage treatment plant's getting a big expansion. And I, and I, I forget why I was complaining. I didn't want to do the story. My editor got to go down there. You got to go down there and find out what's going on at the sewage treatment plant. I go down there. This, this guy gives me like a three hour tour of the sewage treatment plant. I'm going all through the place. This guy works there. He's used to it. I'm blown away by the smells, the sights, the textures. It's really in your face. You may have driven past a sewage treatment plant, but until you've been like on the catwalk, over the poop fountain, you just have no idea what I'm talking about. What do they like? Do they call the poop fountain? Is that the official name yeah. for it? I don't, I, that I can't, actually it was, I think it was called the aeration. Okay. 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 But, but, but poop fountain, calling it a poop fountain paints exactly the picture I think we need. <laughs> All right. We're really talking origin story. If you really want to hear, this is my radioactive spider moment. This is the moment I get bitten by this spider because... The guy's like, yeah, we're shutting down this poop fountain. We're shutting down the aeration unit. We're going to instead install something, a different, more modern aeration unit that's more like a jacuzzi. Okay. So this is the moment. This is the moment that changes everything for me. I go back to the office and I write, the chocolate waters will dance no more. <laughs> as the lead of my article. And my editor says, my editor just writes back, are you kidding? And I, so I changed it. I changed it to whatever it was, the boring, 
major improvements coming to the Christiansburg sewage treatment plant. But in the meantime, I had shown it to everybody around the office. And this one guy, Mike, thought it was funny. And he actually, I think, printed it out and posted it up on his bulletin board. And so quite a bit of time goes by. Quite a bit of time goes by. But I always remember, man, one person thought I was funny. One person liked this thing. And I started, and I I also had this idea for a kid's book. I was always, there's a lot of, broken kids' books along the way. Lots of ideas along the way that are not even worth mentioning here. But I'm always like, me and Cece constantly like, here's an idea for a kids' book. Here's an idea for a kids' book. So I'm like, here's an idea for a kids' book. What if the kid went down to the sewage treatment plant and then I could write the chocolate water stands to warm? And so I wrote that book. It got published. I didn't sell a whole lot of copies at first. Because Um, what was the full title for that first book again? Boy, it got complicated. It ended up being called the Quick Pick Paper. But when Abrams reprinted it, we did end up calling it Poop Fountain. Which then go, I'm not sure that really sold a lot more copies, but it was called Poop Fountain. And, and I just thought the story of three kids going and experiencing what I had experienced, but having a bit kid adventures along the way. I'm still really, I still love that book. I'm very fond of it. I also love the thought of clearly there was a conversation amongst the main editors of the newspaper at the time. Who were they going to send to the sewage treatment plant? Right. Like there, there must have been a discussion. And I imagine the moment they said to you, you were probably like, this is the crappiest assignment I could get figuratively and literally. Right. Like who? And that, crappy assignment changed your life yes it really did it did wow wow man it is funny looking back on it i there was some i was always mr oh yeah i'll do it i'll do it but for some reason i was like man i don't do we have to write this story it's months down the road before they close the poop fountain do we have to write this it was a big photo i there was a tent, there was a showdown between me and the editor, which you'd basically like, go. It's 10 miles, it's just 10 miles down the road. Just go see it. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. So it was Abrams that picked up that first book then. Actually, Dial and Abrams were both interested in it. I chose Dial and uh, it didn't do very well. And then later, when after Origami Yoda was at Abrams, my editor, Susan Van Meter, had always been a big supporter of Quick Pick, the Poop Fountain book from the beginning. And so she agreed to reprint it. And then we were able to finish the, make it a whole trilogy. So the, uh. and that continued with stuff that I had really experienced. After Poop Fountain, there was Rat with a Human Faith. Yes. And Rat with a Human Faith. There was To Kick a Corpse. And those are all real, like local legendary things in this area. And I'm really happy that trilogy got completed finally. Oh, I'm glad that you were able to finish it too, Tom. And so I wonder, what was it like for you then to have that first book be what sounds like it was like a critical failure or financial failure, whatever you want to call it, like an underperformer? Were you so fearful that was it? Like this was your first book. It didn't do well. You're done. Get out of here, kid. You're done in this town. Yeah. It could, it could, it was rough, and it, but and it would have been a lot rougher 
But I had continued, I'm always telling people, don't just write one book, keep on writing. So I had kept on writing and I had come up with Origami Yoda by then. And I was, I knew Origami Yoda. I, there was, I just had a feeling from the beginning, Origami Yoda, this is a book that actually works. And so I remember I had got the letter from Dial that they were remaindering quick pick that it was headed for the recycling plant. And I got that letter and I just remember thinking, man, this would have broken me, but it's not going to break me because I've got a new horse in the game or a new, I've got a new Bansa in the game. Yeah. But not a contract, but you had this book idea and you believed in it enough to then go out with it. Is that it? Like, yeah, I I don't think it was under contract. In fact, the editor that had published Quick Pick that first time didn't care for Origami Yoda very much. I got a pretty much a rejection. It was one of the rewrite the whole book and we'll take another look. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that is a classic story where editors always have the, oh, that book was on on my desk, but I didn't take it. So where, tell me a little bit about how Origami Yoda went from a seedling in your brain to then a published book. Like, obviously, I know you're a big Star Wars fan. Oh, of course, I'm a, a Star Wars fan along. So the whole, the origin, Origami Yoda has its own origin story that involves the force at many levels, the force being at work, the interconnectedness of all things. I was on the internet, saw a picture of the Kawahata Yoda folded by Fumiyaki Kawahata, the great origami master. His Yoda is incredible. I saw it. I wanted to make one. It was way too hard for me to make, just way out of my league. I'm not very good at origami. I've been doing origami since even before I saw Star Wars. I've been doing origami since I'm a little kid, but I still never got good at it. But I knew enough to try making my own Yoda, just enough to try to see if I could do it. I made a super simple one. It wasn't great, but it had this little opening at the bottom where you could put your thumb in. I put it on my finger. I realize it's a finger puppet. Cece comes home. I'm like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And then I'm like, oh my gosh, this would be a great book. So then to skip ahead, the book gets written. It gets sent to Lucasfilm for approval. Yeah. The person at Lucasfilm who has to approve it shows it to her son's like 12, 13. He's like, yeah, all right. You should let him write it. You should let him do it. So I got to do it because this kid in California liked it. And so that, as Susan, my editor, called me up and says, we made it. I just have this wow moment. It's like when Han, oh, not, I almost messed up my Star Wars, not Han Solo. When Lando blows up the second Death Star and he's flying out, it's, yeah, it was this moment like that. It was the greatest moment in, in my whole career. Just this moment where I got I got this email. Yeah, we're going to do it. Wow. And then it grew and grew from there. What year was the first Origami Yoda published? 2010. 2010. Okay, so I was Googling the cover of Origami Yoda to put up with this episode. And I came across an article that was from a grown adult who had Origami Yoda as a kid. Because the, our first readers are all adults now, which is a weird thought. They're all it in, is their, in their 20s. And the article was about how, in this person's opinion, and I fully agree with them, how Origami Yoda saved Star Wars. 
And I know you're not going to take that praise. I know you're not going to take that praise. But that book came out in a time when there wasn't a lot of Star Wars out. The prequels were still just in the rearview mirror. And when the prequels were first released, they weren't very well loved universally. And so Oregon Yoda was like this little glimmer of it was a new hope. And then and obviously then Disney bought Star Wars and, and there's like a, a bounty of so much See, media. Whoever wrote that is my hero. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I have a feeling it may not have been just me. But that, look, those books also brought in fans, people who were not kids who are not Star Wars fans, because those books are very approachable. You don't have to be a huge Star Wars fan to get into the Origami Yoda book. So it's like a gateway that gets you into those bigger stories. But what a wild trip for you to be able to play with that intellectual property that that you came up on. And or Origami Yoda was 2010. There was a bunch of sequels. One of my most favorite books of yours and I have such happy memories of reading these books with my kids or the Inspector Flytrap series. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, so much. Oh, thanks. So you, much. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you know this, but that series just now wrapped up in this spring. We had the final book in that series. It's yes. Nine books. Inspector Flytrap got three. DD Dodo got three. And then DJ Funky Book got three. And so we just now came out with the third of the DJ Funky books, DJ Funky for books illustrated by Heather Fox. And uh, it's been very sad for me to say goodbye to the Inspector Flytrap universe. Anything was possible in the Inspector Flytrap <laughs> Nothing, nothing could not be done. Oh, I had so much fun trying to think up stuff that would challenge the artist on that. It's just set a ball with that. They're silly, they're fun, they're like, literally laughed out loud reading the book with my kids both both me and the kids but before we go though tell us a little bit about your newest stuff that you've been up to oh wow so yeah this is the culmination of all of it this is and this is one of the reasons i've been delving back into my fourth grade me this two-headed chicken is my 101 outer space jokes for today's generation it's the dumbest stuff it's just, I always use the word dumb with it. I'm sure my <laughs> like it, but it's dumb jokes. It's just for fun. It's just to have a good time. It's just for laughs. One of my favorite things in kids' books right now is the way Dave Pilkey will put the word laughs on the cover of one of his books. Yes. L-A-F-F-S. That's like my mantra. Laughs. Man, we need some laughs. And so I tried to write a book it would have just every goofy thing in it uh, where just like the 101 Outer Space Jokes books, they were like, what the stuff that the kids are really enjoying these days are Star Wars and Jaws and Astronaut. So I'll make a bunch of dumb jokes about them. The stuff kids are enjoying these days are like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse and Doctor Who and Mad Max and Star Wars. And I can't even think of, I can hardly remember all the other crazy businesses in there. All kinds of nutty stuff. If I could think of it, it went in the book. If I could figure out how to draw it, it went in the book. It's, it's all about jumping between parallel universes, which once again meant anything was possible. If I had it, had the idea, there was nothing stopping me from figuring out a way to stick it in the book. So yeah, this is my version of that 101 Outer Space Jokes. And I'm 
sending it out there to that fourth grader that's having a crappy year. Here's, if you're watching the <laughs> video version of this, I just pulled up a photo of Tom, young Tom Engelberger. On, what's funny here though, is it's on a Christmas ornament. But also I have Tom in a circle in the video. So it's two Tom Engelberger Christmas ornaments right there. How old are you? This picture? That must've been third grade. That kid in that picture is like so happy and innocent and he doesn't realize he's about to walk down the hall from the third grade classroom to the fourth grade classroom into hell. He doesn't know. <laughs> Ignorance is blessed for that dumb kid. Oh, I'm glad that kid persevered after he walked down that hall because you are a gift and a joy to all of, of comics and children's books and publishing and our community. And I'm so grateful uh, for that time when we were both at the National Book Festival and we're, <laughs> I, I was getting out of the cab and I saw you from a distance and I yelled your name. That's how we first met in person was me accosting you, screaming your name as I stumbled out of a cab because I was so excited to see you. <laughs> That was awesome. That's when I felt like I made it. That's and I'm not even kidding. You were oh. like, oh my God, he actually knows who I am. I can't believe it. Yeah, dude. That was a huge moment. That was great. Oh man. I'm grateful that you were able to take this time so we could connect and I could learn more about all of these odd jobs. And really, it all weaves together. Every experience that you've had has 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 weaved together. Even when you had the crappiest of crappy assignments. You I would say there's some sort of really gross when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, but I'm not sure I want to go there with that. <laughs> I'm sure I've been there. I've been there. I've made all the jokes that were possible. When life sends you, know, you to the poop fountain. It's been weird talking about myself and not asking you for your origin story, but of course I read a book about your origin story already. <laughs> it was a hell of a book. Thanks, man. One great thing about having written really intense memoirs, when you start with a new therapist, you could like, why don't you just read the book and that'll save us like the first two months of sessions. Save us a lot of time. So thank you to Tom Engelberger. I appreciate it, man. I hope we get to see each other in real life before too long. Yeah, we need to do some drawing together, man. Let's do it. Let's do that. I'd lo love to see C as well. All right. Thanks a lot, JJK. Be good, man. Appreciate Bye. it. Again, thank you to Tom for chatting and thank you for listening. If you're interested in picking up some of Tom's books and you'd like to order online while supporting a human with a dream, head to studiojjk.com forward slash origin stories for a link to High Five Books, a wonderful sponsor of the show. Until next time, I'm Jarrett J. Krasoska. Please find me across all social medias at Studio JJK.